Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast, and I am your host, Phil Coover of Clark Hill PLC. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric, now national, commercial real estate podcast, which presents real estate professionals and and attorneys to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues, explanations of sophisticated real estate problems, current developments, and entertaining discussion. This podcast is a mixture of the real estate business and law. Today, we have Kevin Bupp, a real estate investment principal, CEO of Sunrise Capital Investors, host of the popular Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast, and a serial entrepreneur. I had the, the good fortune to be a guest on Kevin's podcast, uh, Real Estate Investing for Cashflow. I think it was episode 206 to talk about opportunity zones. And we got to talking with Kevin and we wanted to have him come on to talk about several different items, uh, one of which is the mobile home park asset class. We haven't had anyone discuss that on our podcast, and it is a very popular asset class for investors right now. We also want to talk about Sunrise Capital Investors and um, just a little bit about the the whole act of raising funds and what it is required and um, how you get into the the business of raising capital to uh, deploy for investors. So Kevin, thank you very much for coming on the show. Phil, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So Kevin, I did uh, the little LinkedIn type of summary for for everyone, but tell us a little bit about Sunrise Capital Investors and what you all are working on over there. Yeah, yeah. Well, well Sunrise Capital Investors is a, uh, a Florida-based investment firm. Uh, we're actually in the uh, the Tampa Bay area, actually a little a little town, little waterfront town called Safety Harbor, um, and we specialize in manufacture housing communities or mobile home parks. Uh, same thing, just different name. Um, and we've been doing this now for as Sunrise Communities. We've been we've been buying mobile home parks for going on four years now, and uh, I, I've been actively involved in this niche uh, prior to Sunrise Communities uh, for a total going on about seven years. So I bought communities before uh, actually putting together a more formal structure under the umbrella of Sunrise Capital Investors. And so uh, that's a little bit about us. Uh, and, and what we have going on is just that. We, uh, we purchase communities throughout the, uh, the U.S. Um, you know, right now we're in 11 different states and uh, got a pipeline uh, that will add basically three more uh, active pipeline that will add three additional states um, to the list. And, uh, and we're just looking to grow. We love the niche. I think that there's a lot of opportunity here and that there's a good bit of opportunity here in the coming years. And uh, we'd like to be able to capitalize on that and, uh, and, and, and basically take these, uh, you know, some are distressed, some are just uh, improperly managed and operated, uh, take these communities and, and breathe new life into them. And that's what we're really good at. So, Very interesting. That's pretty rapid uh, growth that you all are experiencing. And I'm talking to investors in other spaces that are a little bit frustrated with the current market and where prices are and, and how everything, and with, especially with raising interest rates. Mm-hmm. And so I was just curious, you know, why the manufactured community, why the mobile home park space, what do you all like about the asset class? Yeah, no, you know, there's a lot of things that we like about it. And, um, uh, a couple of the big things, and I'm going to try to make a comparison because it's, it, it's what really sold me on this niche, or at least, uh, you know, push me, to dig a little deeper, you know, many years back, um, prior to mobile home parks, uh, I had owned 
um, hundreds of apartment communities, uh, and then also a very large portfolio of single family rental properties. So I've been a full-time investor uh, for going on 19 years now. This is basically all I've done um, in my adult life is, is, is a full-time real estate investor. And so I've always been very niche specific. You know, I, I like to have a focus on one particular niche and master it and, uh, and essentially grow a portfolio out of it. Again, start with single family, moved on to apartment complexes, and then ultimately uh, landed where we're at today, which is mobile home parks. And um, comparatively speaking, I like to compare into apartment complexes because that, that is, um, you know, it's a common theme out there today. Everyone knows uh, about the multifamily space. It's the, you know, it's the hottest thing going out there. Uh, everyone wants them. They're very hard to buy now because of compressed cap rates and uh, uh, raising, uh, rising prices. But um, in comparing them to an apartment complex, some of the big benefits that we see in, the, in mobile home park space is you know, much lower turnover than what you might experience in a uh, residential rental apartment complex. And that most of the, the, the residents that live in our communities, they own their homes or they own their trailers. And so it's not as easy as just deciding that they want to get up and move one day. In fact, what typically happens is when they want to move, they normally put their home up for sale, just like uh, Phil, you or, or myself might do in our own primary residence. We'll put it up for sale, uh, whether listing it with an agent or just doing it as a for sale by owner. We find a new buyer to, to come in and purchase it, and we move on, right? We move our things out of there and move to another place. So it, although they're called mobile homes, it's a little misleading. They're very expensive and very uh, it's very challenging to move them. It's a, it takes a lot of resources to do that. So the, the benefit there is the turnover aspect. We very rarely have a period of time where we have a down revenue unit. You know, so when someone moves, they pay their lot rent until they're ready to move. New owner comes in, continues paying that lot rent or takes over that responsibility. Whereas in an apartment, someone moves out, you've got, you know, 30 to 60 days of downtime. You've got to go in there and renovate the unit or clean it up. And then you got to go, uh, you know, do the uh, process of releasing it. So you've got some down revenue months there uh, in an apartment complex. So I really like that aspect of it. In addition to that, yeah. The um, you know the maintenance demand or the uh, the management intensity of a mobile home park typically is is much less than that of an apartment complex of the similar size, and you know the reason being is if we don't own the homes then we're not getting calls about plumbing issues or about roof leaks or about air conditioners breaking, um, you know we're not dealing with that kind of thing. The only thing that we're responsible for is maintaining the infrastructure of the community, and that typically means water lines, sewer lines, and roads, and any common area that might exist. And so uh, that's very minimal when you compare it to the, again, similar size apartment community. Um, and then just a few other things I'll make mention of here of why we really like this niche. You know, again, comparing apples to apples, and this is assuming that you're buying right, okay? Anyone can overpay for a property, but this is assuming you're buying right. Comparing apples to apples of a similar sized apartment complex and mobile home park within the same general MSA, uh, you should expect to achieve a higher yield or higher return uh, on your capital within that mobile home park than what you might get on the similar size apartment complex. And, uh, you know, today I'd say on average, we're buying things uh, anywhere between a, um, probably a, a seven to eight and a half cap rate. Whereas uh, apartment complexes in those same exact markets are, are trading, uh, at least, um, a point lower than that. Probably, probably much more, um, uh, you know, depending on the size of the MSA in any event, those are some of the, the, the big factors there. And then one other thing I want to mention here, this is a big one that really piqued my interest when, when, uh, someone, you know, turned me onto this niche many years back. It's the only asset class in commercial real estate that has a diminishing supply. This is a big one because I love barriers to entry, right? And so 
there's only been a, I mean, in the last 10 years, the amount of product that's been brought online, new product, um, is less than 20 communities. Whereas the number that have been closed down due to redevelopment or just shut down because they're running properly is in the hundreds. And so they're not being built anymore. Municipalities don't want them. They've got a bad stigma and, you know, the tax basis isn't, you know, all that attractive to uh, a municipality to, to give approval to build one. And then also the ones that were built 50, 60 years ago where it might've been invaluable land back then, it wasn't really in the path of progress. Well, towns have kind of, um, you know, formed around them and now they are directly in the middle of town where that land ultimately might have a higher and better use whether it be a shopping center, apartment complex, mall, something of that nature. And so those are just some of the big reasons why we love this niche. Uh, many others I could go on and on, probably for the next hour about all the things we love about it. Uh, but th those are some, some of the higher level ones. Well, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I hadn't thought about some of that, such as you're, you're decreasing your broker's expenses on reletting like you would in the multifamily space. You, you don't have the, the turnover costs per door that you would have because the owners are going to clean up their, their own units before they try to sell them. Um, the less maintenance is key. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that about owning a multifamily building is that you really need good management or you need to be ready to help people because if somebody's water breaks on Saturday at three in the morning, you know, they want it fixed and um, you may not have all of those issues. It's really interesting to think about like all of the advantages there. Um, in terms of building, do, do you all just buy uh, here, I'll, I'll hold my question. Sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, I was going to say, and, and I'll, I'll edit this out for us, okay, before I send it over to you. I, I need two minutes here. I need to give a credit card number. I'm so sorry. I need to give a credit card number over the phone to somebody real quick, okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm very, fine. very sorry. Okay, give me one second. So. Oh, that's fine. I'm so sorry about that, Phil. We, we had had an issue with one of our managers' cards. They all have company cards, and uh, they're having it kept getting declined due to some kind of fraudulent activity. And so they were trying to one of our contractors was trying to make a big purchase at Home Depot, and they couldn't do it. So I just had to get. Oh no problem. Oh god, sorry, man. I didn't right. forgot no, what you were going to no. ask me. <laughs> no, no, I, I got it. I still have the question. You ready? Do it. All right, Kevin. So my question is, if there is a decrease in supply, are, is Sunrise Capital, are you all developing any of these mobile home communities or are you uh, just purchasing the, the existing? No, right. you know, we're just purchasing the existing. And, you know, that, that's a really good question because I, I probably get asked at least once a week. And um, he, here's the thing, a couple of different factors involved there, of why we ultimately decided to not even attempt to go after any uh, development plays. Uh, number one, as I mentioned, municipalities don't like us um, for the most part. You know, th th there's a number of communities throughout the U.S., lots of them, thousands that are run correctly. Um, they're, they're uh, you know, the owners actually maintain them. They put capital back into them. Um, you know, they're prideful about their communities. And but then there's other ones that are run by slumlords. They don't put money back into them. They attract the wrong clientele. And ultimately, the only thing that we're really known for are the bad ones. Uh, no one really speaks to the, the, you know, the higher quality community that do exist out there in the U.S. And so with that, municipalities, um, they look at that negative stigma and they're like, you know, not in my backyard. We're, we don't, we don't want a mobile home park. We're, we have never approved one. And so, um, the uphill battle that might exist or that, that would take place in trying to get approval to actually build a new community, um, would be a task in and of itself. And so let's assume that you can actually get past 
that pro that that part of the process. Now you've got the, the the risk that is associated with developing any type of real estate, right? You've got um, a lot of time, a lot of capital poured in on the front side, um, which is the riskiest portion of the development play, um, all while receiving no cash flow. Now, once you actually let's say you get the first phase done of a mobile home community, a new build. Now you got to fill the lots, right? Like you got you got to have a process in place in order to actually attract people to bring their homes. And I'll tell you that way back when, you know, twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, it, you know, there was a lot of uh, readily available consumer financing for um, for mobile home buyers. Got you know, folks that wanted to buy a mobile home and move it in, into a community. There's still some out there today, but it's not great. Uh, you got to have pretty high credit scores. Um, and if you have a high credit score, then you'll probably ultimately end up buying a stick built home, right? And so you might be able to build it, but the chances of them coming um, is slim to none. And so if you develop a new community, about the only way that you're going to truly get it filled and get it filled quickly is to create your own internal new home sales program, meaning that you bring the homes and you buy the new homes, you bring them in which is incredibly capital intensive. And then you have a full blown sales process. You know, think of a new car dealership, right? Same thing, but you're selling homes here. Yeah. Lots of risk, lots of capital, and a long time before you probably are gonna actually recognize uh, any profits from that endeavor. And so with that being said, there's lots of communities that are out there today that, um, you know, that have been mismanaged for years. That, that have the infrastructure in place, um, we can purchase them for less than the replacement cost. And so might as well go buy something that already has some existing cash flow in place, uh, something that we can pour some capital into. While we've already got some cash flow coming in, we can improve it, we can expand it. You know, we've got some expansions going on here today where we purchased a community that was, let's say, like one we've got over in Iowa, 77 lots, and it's got a 50 lot expansion that we're working on uh, today. So we're going to essentially, we've got the cash flow from the existing part. We're going to add another 50 lots, probably build that out in two different phases. And, uh, and over the next couple of years, turn it from a 77 space park to a, I believe it's going to be 130 or 123 space park uh, when it's all said and done. So that for us makes a lot more sense. And, um, you know, it's a little bit easier to manage the risk associated with it versus a ground up development. Uh, that makes a ton of sense when you explain it that way. So you have me sold. Let me, let's say I'm an investor and I, and I like <laughs> yeah. what you're saying and I, and I like uh, where you're going with this and what, and your philosophy of why you like this asset class. Tell me about Sunrise and what sort of funds you're raising and what sort of investors that you are looking for are a good fit for what you have to offer? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. So uh, today, uh, as we record this, um, we raise capital underneath a five, uh, five, uh, Reg D 506C offering. And uh, so we uh, only work with accredited investors and our current fund structure, and, and, and we don't do deal specific capital raises. So we're not just buying one property at a time and raising capital for it. Um, our pipeline is, uh, is quite stout. Uh, we do a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, direct to owner marketing. Uh, we've got a full-time cold caller in house here. We do a lot of direct mail. We work with a lot of brokers. And so we've got a lot of deal flow coming in. And so for us, it made sense uh, a few years back to uh, focus more on a, uh, we don't call it a blind pool. We call it a semi-blind pool structure. And so we're buying multiple mobile home parks underneath one capital raise event. Uh, and I call it semi-blind because we typically have a pipe at any given time. We've got a pipeline of parks that are in contract, um, you know, whether we're in the middle of a capital raise or we're moving into a new fund, uh, you know, launching a new fund. We've already got deals that are in 
different stages of due diligence. And so we're not just raising capital and then blindly going out and trying to find deals to fill fill it in. And so uh, in today's world, we're, we're on our, uh, what we call our um, uh, mobile home park growth and income fund. Uh, and that fund uh, has a different pref structure depending on how much capital uh, is, is actually contributed by the investor, uh, anywhere from eight to eight to 10% pref, depending again, how much capital is put in. Um, 8% if you put in up to 249, um, uh, 250 to 500K, uh, 9% pref, and then over 500K would be a 10% pref. And then it's a 50-50 split between the general partners and limited partners after that. Now, one interesting thing that we actually have written into our fund documents, which you don't see that often, and it's really, it comes down to the, the confidence that we have, in not only the product, but our ability to actually uncover really good opportunities and, 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 you know, truly realize the value that's there. We've got a 12% clawback provision um, that's written into our operating agreement into the fund itself. And that uh, at the end of the, the horizon, uh, let, let's just use 10 years because it's an easy round number. We divest of every asset that we purchase in the fund that we're raising for today. Let's say it ends up being 10 communities. We divest of all those. If we haven't met an annualized cash on cash return, throughout the life of that investment for our investors of 12%, then they ultimately get to claw back whatever deficiency from the general partner side before we actually participate in any of the profits at the end. So um, there's no such thing as a guarantee as we know in our business, but it's the closest thing to a guarantee that you can possibly get. So that's a high level point of view. That's what our fund structure looks like. That's not to say if someone reaches out to me a year from now, it might not be slightly different, but ultimately today that is what it looks like. Oh, that's super interesting. So if, if I'm an investor and I invest, what you're saying is, is that I will be, that the plan is, is that I get a preferred return uh, on a yearly basis. And then at the, at the end of the, the fund life, that if I, if you haven't made me enough to satisfy that return out of the capital for when you, when you sell the assets will be, you'll replenish the, the preferred return that you had, um, I don't want to use the word promise, but that was scheduled to be delivered to the investor and uh, rather than just distribute it all out to the, the general partners. Yeah, I mean, that, that you almost got it. And just to, just to give clarity here, um, we, we'll pay, we pay more than the PREF. Um, we'll basically, anything above the PREF gets split 50-50. So once the PREF is met, um, then the, the remaining cash flow is split 50-50. And so what I mean by this, so we haven't realized for that investor at the end of the horizon, at the, you know, when we divest of all these assets, so we haven't, we can't look back for all 10 years and see that, you know, with their PREF, in addition to the cash flow distributions above that PREF, that we haven't met an average of 12% annualized cash flow cash returns each and every year for those 10 years, then they get to pull back from our general partnership side before we uh, participate in any of the actual profits during the sale. Wow, that's, that's super interesting. So if somebody, uh, all right, here, I'll ask this. I'll give you the question I really want to want the answer to, but then I'll give you uh, an out. Um, so what sort of, what amount, how big are the funds that you're raising and what would an investor, do you have a minimum or a maximum that investor be required? And if you don't want to say that on the podcast, how should people explore the answer to that question? 
Yeah, no, no, I don't mind sharing that at all. So our, our, the current fund that we're raising in today, uh, it was a $10 million uh, equity raise with the ability to extend it another $10 million based on, you know, basically not necessarily the performance, but our deal flow that we had at the time. Again, we don't, we don't like raising capital unless we've got a deal to put it in. Um, we're slightly different than a lot of funds out there, whereas they focus on the capital raise and then they go searching for deals. We're a little bit different. We search for deals you know, build up a big pipeline and then ultimately go raise the capital necessary to take them down. So um, we, we launched our current fund uh, that's out there today that we're, that we're taking in money for. We raised it uh, at the end of last, or I'm sorry, May of last year. And uh, within five weeks had, um, had raised the initial $10 million that we were looking for. So very, very quick, um, you know, very quick to raise that, that, that uh, you know, that threshold that we are looking to reach. Yeah, we've ultimately, yeah, we've ultimately worked really hard uh, throughout the remaining of last year to deploy all that capital. Um, we're at the point now to worth about three weeks ago, we've just opened up the second $10 million tranche. Um, Cause again, we've got a big, big pipeline built here and uh, ultimately they're close enough to where we need the capital to start taking down those, you know, I guess the second half of those deals. And so um, that's where we're at today. As far as, the minimum investment is a hundred thousand dollars. And again, it's gotta be an accredited investor. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. That's, that's really gives a lot of context. Uh, it's really interesting that you're able to raise that kind of fund so quickly. Um, one question I always had, and I just want to ask is right now you have an established track record. So if I'm an investor, you can say, well, you know, this is what we plan to do. And, I'm confident that we'll be able to do it because look at these prior funds and look at what we've been able to do in the past five or 10 years uh, with similar product and similar size. How'd you do the first one? You know, what was just, you know, like how did you go about one? I had so many questions about this. I've always wanted to ask somebody who's <laughs> able to do it. How'd you get the idea to raise capital from accredited investors? Um, how'd you go about, soliciting and marketing to get the funds mm-hmm. and you know what did you tell stories to get to get that first deal done yeah no that's a great question well first and foremost uh we bought a number of communities uh, prior to actually forming sunrise capital investors so prior to actually going out soliciting investors for money we used our own money and uh and we bought a number of communities to you know get uh, a better feel for this investment uh, niche and and to, to really kind of Master our craft is the best way to put it. And uh, I'd rather do that and test that with my own money than to go out and raise capital and do it with someone else's. So um, that's really how. I mean, we built a track record on our own capital, our own risk, uh, prior to actually saying, hey, guys, uh, here's our idea. Would you like to participate? Now, you know, we went out and raised capital for the first time. We said, hey, here's what we've done over the past three years. Uh, here's the success that we've had. Here's the opportunities we've been able to purchase. Here's what we intend to do moving forward. Would you like to come along for the ride. So a little bit easier. Um, it wasn't just yeah. a hypothetical situation. It was, there was like a true track record that we could display um, that, that our foundation was built on. Um, and so, you know, for those that are maybe, you know, just starting out, I'd say one of two things, you know, cause it's a hard barrier to overcome if you don't have a track record. So I'd say one of two things you need to do either go out first, if you have some of your own money, go in, if it doesn't, you know, if you don't have enough money to go buy a hundred, unit of a mobile home park or apartment complex, buy a smaller one, right? Just buy a smaller scale and whatever you can afford and prove your concept, right? Even if it's a 10 unit, 
right? You can still do the same thing. Get in there. If it's a value add play, get in there, clean it up, add value, you know, raise the revenue, increase the overall value to it. And, uh, and then take that to an investor say, Here, here's what I've done thus far. I'd like to do it again. I've got some opportunities coming out of the pipe. Um, I need some partners to come along with me for the ride. Um, would you like to join it? It'd be a lot easier of a sale if you've proven it, even on a smaller scale. And then if you don't have the money to do any of that yourself, then ultimately go find a, go find a partner that, you know, you might have a complimentary skill set to, like you could bring some value to the table, but someone that's already got a little bit of a track record that you can kind of pair up with and, you know, kind of lean on their credibility. And again, you got to be able to bring some value to the table. You got to figure out what that is yourself, but um, bring value to the table, lean on their credibility, which ultimately allows you to go out and, um, you know, probably be much more successful raising capital from investors uh, if you haven't done it yet yourself, you haven't done a deal yet yourself. And so um, as far as the idea of Sunrise Capital Investors, it really was a, it was born out of necessity. You know, at, at, at one point we we're like, hey, like we're really good at sourcing deals. Um, we do it quite differently than most other people in our space. <clears throat> uh, we've spent the last five years building a proprietary database of every mobile home park in the United States. But not only that, but the actual owners, you know, home mailing addresses, their cell phone numbers, uh, if they have a second home in Florida, that, that address. I mean, we've got all their personal detail information and you can't just go buy that. Right. You can't go to CoStar and get it. We're, we're one of the few asset classes. Like you can't just go spend money and obtain this list somewhere. You've got to build it through blood, sweat, and tears. And we've had a team of VAs in the Philippines for years building this list for us. And so um, we do a lot of direct mail, a lot of cold calling. We got a full-time cold caller in our office. That's all she does all day long is literally follows up, like literally calls on thousands of mobile home park owners throughout the year. Um, and anyway, we, we're, we're always sourcing these deals. And so we, we said to each other, hey, we've, we're kind of tapped out. Like we, we don't have any more of our own capital. Like we're doing wealthy investments we have, but we've got a lot of other opportunity here. Um, I know there's got to be plenty of other people that would love to join in these opportunities, right? We've already found them. Um, we've got, you know, we know that we can find plenty more. And so we started, I initially started putting out the word on the podcast, my podcast, just, you know, just yeah. kind of putting out the feelers. And I had a lot of people raise their hands and start talking about it more to people I knew. A lot of people raised their hands. And ultimately, everyone wants a good thing, right? Everyone wants a sure thing. And I wouldn't say that we were necessarily a sure thing, but we had a track record. We had, we had proved the concept. And um, when you can show that, you know, you can show an investor, hey, here's what we've done. Here's what we intend to do. And be very clear and concise uh, with that plan. Um, I wouldn't say that it's easy to raise capital, but there's a lot of people out there seeking yield. I mean, a lot of people out there looking to do something with their money, right? That it's not working for them right now. And so you show them a somewhat proven idea and a proven concept and, uh, and, and you can gain the confidence of them. Then raising the capital actually has become the probably one of the less challenging things in our business. Um, almost finding good deals, although we're really good at it, has become a little bit more of a challenge than actually raising the capital. So we work really hard at both, but um, it's just the track record is so vitally important, Phil. I mean, it just is. And again, if you don't have it yourself, go, go, go get it, do a couple small deals, or go find a, a partner that has that track record that you can lean on. It's uh, really good advice. I have this friend who worked for one of the, the large institutional players as an analyst, and he moved to southeastern Michigan and he just started putting a deal together, uh, just some friends and family money. And I'm talking just, uh, you know, like a one or two hundred thousand dollar deal and just well, I'm going to buy a single family home 
or two and they're rented out and I'm just going to be really diligent about my records and our rate of return and what we did. And I'm going to send out quarterly reports to all my investors and I'm just going to be, I'm going to overdo the paperwork on uh, for this size of deal. And I'm just going to make my investors feel real comfortable that I'm paying attention to things and providing timely reports. I'm giving them good information so that they're not wondering what's going on with the money and the investment. And even though it was, you know, compared to what you're doing, it was just an extremely uh, modest deal. He was just really diligent about, I'm just going to do this and no one's going to make any sort of life-changing money off this. But I just want people to know that I can do this, that I can acquire the asset, I can give them information, I can do what I say that I'm going to do, and then just build it up. And so I need to follow up with him. It's been it's been a while. I wonder where he's he's landed. Maybe he'll be the next guest. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, um, one other thing I had is just, you're saying that raising the capital isn't the uh, hardest part of the process for you anymore. Now you have the tracker, but what is the most challenging part of your business? You know, the challenges evolve over time and um, you know, our space has become more competitive. And so uh, a lot of it probably is, uh, is, is, you know, a lot of, there's lots more larger institutional guys getting to our space um, you know, the major financial publications have taken notice of, of, of this niche. And then also I, we have a podcast. We talk about this, you know, literally mobile home park specifically, you know, we talk about the niche, why we like it so much that, you know, we have tens of thousands of people that listen to that show each and every month and half for years. And so, you know, I think that the niche has just gotten a lot more exposure. And so it, it you know, we're, we're fighting, not fighting, but we're, we've got competition on stuff that we might not have had competition on, you know, two or three years ago, even with that being said, um, there's still a lot of opportunity out there, lots of aging owners. And so not really overly concerned about that, but I'd say one of the biggest challenges we have today as we are a growing company is, is finding the right talent to bring on board, you know, finding the right fit for our team here internally. Um, and we've done a really good job at it, but it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy. I mean, we could ultimately just go out and hire, you know, you know, butts to fill seats that, that, you know, on paper have the experience and, and the skill sets to do the job at hand but actually finding the folks that have all that and then have the personality that uh, is directly aligned with our core philosophies here and, and uh, just our general personalities and that, that, that men's really well, that's really challenging. That's tough to do. And so um, I'm sure a lot of other folks that are listening, if you've got growing businesses, um, you probably run into the same challenges. And uh, I'd say it's one of our bigger ones nowadays because we're growing. So we've been hiring a lot over the last year and a half and, um, and some of the positions have taken us much longer to fill than we anticipated. And it's only because we haven't found the right person to fill them yet. If, um, if we have any young, young bucks out there or, or more experienced bucks out there looking for to work in that space, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah, so I'm pretty easy to track down. Uh, I've got, you know, two different websites. One is our company at sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. You can uh, go there and, and uh, go to the contact us page and um, uh, that, that makes its way to me. And then my personal website, which is also where I host uh, my real estate investing for cash flow podcast. Uh, and it's just my name, kevinbuck.com. And uh, either one of those, you can, you can track me down. I'm not too hard to find. And just for our listeners out there, if you, if you enjoy this podcast, I'm certain that you'll enjoy the Real Estate Investing for Cash Flow podcast. It has a lot of similar themes. Kevin's much better at it than I am. He's been doing it a lot longer, so I think oh, that you'll really enjoy, <laughs> really enjoy that. And just one thing I just wanted to pay you a compliment on, and um, 
and I know our time is running a little short, is just a thought that occurred to me a few days ago and, and while I listen to your talk is I find that in business, this happens a lot in the law and you can either, there's two philosophies where people either take information that's there's the secret sauce and they try to control it and they try to not tell people about their secret or about what their business philosophy is because they're afraid that it will be duplicated and replicated and then they'll have more competition. And then there's sort of the open source philosophy, which says, hey, I've got this idea. I believe in it. And I'm going to allow people access to my thoughts and my information and my philosophies. But I believe that if I do that, that a rising tide floats all boats or lifts yeah. all boats. Lifts all boats yeah. or, I love that. <laughs> and, and that if I share, even though there might be more competitors, I'm confident in what I'm doing. And then I will gain more out of sharing my thoughts and my philosophies and I'll receive more by giving than I will, that I will lose by not sharing. Mm-hmm. And I just, I find that what you're doing with your mobile home podcast and with the real estate investing for, uh, for cash flow podcast, uh, I just, I, I enjoy that philosophy. I know lawyers that just don't want to, don't, they don't want to even tutor people within their own firms. Uh, Whereas I just appreciate your, your open source philosophy of saying, you know, there's going to be more competition in this space, but I think I'll get more out of it by sharing than I will lose by not sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, we fully subscribe to uh, living a life of abundance and, and just giving and I, I, I'm of, uh, of the true mindset that, it, you know, it will come back tenfold. And that's whether it's in business and personal life. Um, and I enjoy and I enjoy meeting others in the space. And it, it's, it's uh, you know, it's rewarding to to meet folks that say, Hey, I listen to, you know, I'm sure you get this as well. I listened to you know, podcast number 20 or whatever it might be. And that one thing you said, uh, at, 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 you know, in the middle of the show, it just, it changed my life forever. Or it was such a great idea. I went and acted on it and it's turned out really well for me. Right. And I'm like something I didn't remember. Right. It was just, uh, it's just living by that philosophy of, of, of abundance, like giving and, and helping others. And ultimately you know, it will come back and pay it tenfold. So uh, it's a much more enjoyable living that way than being in fear, you know, that closed vest syndrome of, I got this idea, it's a great idea, and I'm not going to share it with anybody, right? That sucks. <laughs> it's like living in a dark cave. So fun. And um, and I don't think those people get ahead, the, the ones that, you know, I'm sure there could be an argument and a good debate on both sides of why it makes more sense to keep it close to the vest versus sharing it, but um, I'm going to stay on the, the side of abundance. <laughs> I appreciate that. I I definitely enjoy uh, learning from you, and uh, I enjoy listening to the podcast. So, Kevin, I I really appreciate your time today, and thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, well, Phil, thanks for having me on, and thank you for all you do as well. I and, you know I, I can uh, personally attest to the amount of time it takes and energy to put together on a show like this, and to track down guests uh, and, and get the show up on time because I showed up late to your show, and um, it's a lot of energy and effort. So thank you, you know, for everything that you do and all the value that you bring to all your listeners. So it's uh, I'm sure I'm sure you've been changing lives you don't even realize it. So thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Kevin. No information contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or other professional advice, and no professional relationship of any kind is created between you, the podcast host, the guests, or Clark Hill, PLC. 
you are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and the guests, and not necessarily Clark Hill PLC.